Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Am I still on? Michael Johns is my guest. I'm going to talk everything politics. It's the Jim Fannin Show. Welcome aboard. Hello, my friend. It's been a while since we talked. And last time we spoke, I asked you to make a bold prediction. And then you made the prediction and it all came true. You said, rightly, that uh, and you made this prediction before the certification of the vote in between the election and the certification that uh, the Supreme Court would have the well would not last. <laughs> would lack the strength to do anything about what happened in the election. And so uh, I guess we'll just lead straight into that. Has Do you feel like you fixed your problems or are there Republicans destined to never be elected again in the United States? Absolutely haven't fixed the problems. Um, and, you know, the origin of this in my judgment still continues to go back to uh, November 3. Um, And you can see it in the sentiment of the American people in the sense that um, Trump and Obama, you know, they both had their uh, very difficult periods and their and and serious opposition, but they also had bases of support, you know, kind of a a buffer of 40% or so and rarely went underneath that. This president, Biden, has no such uh, safety net. And, you know, in the judgment of a lot of people, that's simply because, you know, he did not receive the most votes in the history of uh, the American presidency, as is contended. Now, you know, the judgment that I put forward, and I think it's a sensible one, is you have six of these states, at least, that have asked to, mm-hmm. you know, be reassessing them and just about every systematic barrier that could be erected to that has been erected as for the supreme court i mean my my view on that was simply that um even um in a different set of circumstances yeah they did probably lack the the leadership and fortitude but they also are not commonly in the in the um, business of hearing cases where the evidence is in question Mm. Right. So when you think about your typical Supreme Court case, it's usually all the facts are stipulated 
and it goes to the court and the court is interpreting whether um, you know, a certain law or judgment or position or policy is or is not constitutional. That's really ultimately the role of the Supreme Court. And in my view, we have underlying questions here as, as they relate to facts. Now, I think this is the most important, you know, this is the final point on the election is that you had, um, you know, on our side, the uh, Navarro reports, three editions of them that are overwhelmingly compelling. You had the the you did have the filing uh, of the, with the Supreme Court by the Texas AG that was signed on to by multiple other state attorneys general, and then we had thousands of um, affidavits signed under penalty of law by um, individuals, and these weren't partisan Republicans in all cases. They were a lot of times just election officials, careerists, or uh, even Democrats. What do we have on the other side? That's kind of what I would sort of push back on and say that if the Navarro reports, for instance, were systematically inaccurate or flawed or embellished or overtly partisan, you would see Navarro reports the rebuttal. And that would be the end of the debate. There is no such document because there's substantive and serious allegations in there that cannot be rebutted because they actually did happen. You think this happens with Stone and Bannon if they're on the job? I mean, we see them openly, I say them, the left coming out and openly gloating in the New York Times about how they took these states down and made these these unconstitutional changes to the election laws. And do you think that if you had the political pit bulls in the war room that, you know, they put a stop to this years before? Because, I mean, by election time, it's too late, obviously. But do you think if you had the pit bulls in the war room that this actually goes down? I think you're, that's, that's a very good point because, I mean, I, I just simply think you cannot underestimate the importance of personnel. And in government, uh, you can have the best president of the United States with the best vision, and he, he himself or herself may have immense fortitude and strength and boldness, but the operational components, both of, of electoral politics and of policy politics, are so complex and have so many different components that you know really any person along the way can sort of um, you know uh, impede or slow walk those initiatives. And so, for instance, you know what was the biggest real position of of uh, Trump in the sixteen uh, campaign was to build the wall. Well, then personnel really got let's be honest neglected. You ended up having anonymous sitting there as chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security, kind of the right hand operational person um, in that very crucially important department. And uh, not so surprisingly, not a lot of progress was made in that first two years where there was, you know, control of the House and Senate that, and votes, I, I believe, aligned to have gotten that done. Um, you know, had the decision really been made. So, and and the and this and those I could go on and on with those examples. I mean, there was no department, including the West Wing of the White House itself, that wasn't filled with opponents of Trump. I mean, you've got the media against you, and you've got academia against you, and you've got Congress sort of scratching their head about what direction you're taking things, and um, you know, an entire far left activist community. You need at least your own personnel and your own administration to be sufficiently loyal. And for all of the immense good things that Trump 
did and I think can potentially do should he run again. But the one deficiency we can't be blind to is the fact that uh, the, the the appointments were handed off through Ryan's previous to uh, individuals who didn't really share that vision. And, um, you know, the result was uh, a, a staff, an administration staff that wasn't really terribly distinct or different from what you would have seen had Jeb Bush or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio actually secured that nomination. And that's frustrating. And it's also something that we haven't really talked a lot about because the sad reality of politics is, you know, you kind of get in these areas of loyalty and you don't want to be critical of your own side. And I guess, you know, I, I'm not being critical because I don't think these were Trump decisions. I think this was Trump placing trust in people that he trusted, um, had his best interests in the MAGA agenda at heart. And sadly, um, those individuals really didn't. Bannon uh, is a great mind in my view. I've come to think even higher of him in the present tense than I did during the administration. Not someone who has really the longevity that I've had in this, so I never even really heard of him before 2015. But when I look at um, some of the messaging he's putting out now, um, I think that's pretty inspirational, setting aside the the uh, ethical issues he had, which are in inexcusable, um, sadly. But we're all human, I guess. Yeah, sure. How much hope do you have moving forward that we see some semblance of fairness in the next uh, presidential elections? Uh, maybe you can touch uh, even on the much. 2022. I, no, I really don't see it. I, I think, um, you know, firstly, to have confidence in 2022, you have to have confidence in 2020. You get, there's no such thing as a pass. Right. Uh, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't be permissible in any election, much less. This is not, you know, this is not a city commission race. This was a presidency of the United States. And um, you can see it in the numbers of the American people, too, where they, they just don't buy into the fact that this guy could not attract an audience, even in a high school gymnasium lost to a guy who was drawing stadium-sized crowds and had extraordinary enthusiasm. And then just on a kind of anecdotal basis, you know, they're talking to their friends and their neighbors. Um, and, you know, you've got people that were really enthusiastically supportive of Trump, people who maybe not have liked a few components of his demeanor or personality, but voted for him. They're just, you don't see anyone out there who says, yeah, Joe Biden, this 50 year career is so exceptional. I mean, it's it's a it's a really a, a, an entirely unremarkable career of almost zero accomplishment, except for what he's been able to obtain for his family in these ongoing pay to play uh, schemes that he's developed. It's almost a systematic um, pattern throughout his career where he's put in charge of some functional area, usually in foreign affairs. He goes out, he fails at that initiative, but his family somehow ends up with some, you know, sweet deal. And that was something that a lot of us were raising. It's very germane now that we're dealing with issues with China's Communist Party, with Putin on the move in Ukraine, and with, um, you know, other conflicts, I think, as it relates to um these irrational decisions like Afghanistan. Um, it's wrong, by the, by the way, I mean, you know, and I almost have to hesitate myself because you want to call it mismanagement or incompetence because that's 
almost giving him the benefit of the doubt that he's that he in fact and his team are acting in the best interest of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. I have to concede. I uh, when I really really deeply ponder it, I know that these this Biden administration and the personnel that are in there from you know Blinken and guys like this, they're operationally sound. I mean they're solid and they're intelligent people. Um, the problem is. They have an entirely dramatically different vision of the role of the United States in the world. And ultimately, when you really push them on it, you know, they're, they're a believer in what this managed decline philosophy and this idea that too much power is held by the United States and that we need a balancing of that at the globe, what we call this globalist vision. Um, it's manifested predominantly out of the World Economic Forum and Davos and the 1% of the world. It's got very specific points to it. And it's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, it's like literally a document that's out there and it's been guiding policy for a long, long time. It's one of the reasons we've allowed uh, China's Communist Party to get away with these extraordinarily um, you know, unacceptable levels of intellectual property theft and unfair trade practices and currency manipulations and whatnot. It's also a reason why, you know, we've had to shoulder the burden of all of these conflicts abroad, multi-decade conflicts where, you know, yeah, we had interests, but so did the rest of the world. It's why we're wrestling with uh, NATO to get even a 2% GDP commitment for the common defense. Um, so the world's on fire tonight. There's no doubt about it. I think you kind of opened it's nothing up. To laugh I, don't about know if we I think it was before we went on air. But yeah, I mean, the world's on fire, and the world's on fire because, on the most basic of levels, and I think you can go multiple tiers beneath this. But the whole world watched Afghanistan, and it was just simply from the retreat at Bagram Air Base in July, early July, with uh, literally the Afghans on that base waking up the next morning and saying, where are the Americans that were gone? They like literally left overnight, no pre-announcement, no handoff ceremony, high security prison on that, uh, on that base that was housing over a thousand enormously dangerous terrorists, you know, just left unguarded. The message was sort of sent that we were just banning this to the Taliban. You know, you you Putin saw that Xi Jinping saw it. Weakness. Pakistan saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, powers of the world saw it, mm-hmm. and, and our friends like Taiwan and, and NATO and um, Saudi Arabia, UAE, all these countries that we gained enormous uh, improved relationships with under Trump, and um, you know had a sort of anxiety or having anxiety attacks tonight because mm-hmm. the message that was sent with the August 15 fall of Kabul is, look, you cannot rely on the United States of America. And in foreign affairs and national security, that is simply the most dangerous message you can send. You can downgrade expectations. You can say, hey, look, we can't we can't do this or that. But you have to be a person. You have to be a country of your word. And um, now how many times have we not been, just in this last year, a country of our word? It sounds like you've been wrestling with the same type of question I have been where I've kind of, I I don't want to give the world economic forum or any of their students or Schwab or Biden or anyone on the left as much credit other than to say they're just 
incompetent, but uh, because I don't think they're all that bright. So I can't see them laying the foundation and the infrastructure for a takeover of the Great Reset. And even just saying it, I sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it's right there. They're out in the open bragging about taking over parliaments, especially in Canada. And now, and I mean, this is great talking to you because I think you put it so succinctly, is the difference in ideology how it plays out in real life. Like when you put these ideas into politics, you're, you know, if you have weak borders, you have some serious issues in your country. If you don't have fair elections or, you know, if you don't, uh, you know, yeah. abide by the Constitution for your elections. And, you know, I was kind of as an outsider and I never paid attention. I told you this before. I've never paid attention to American politics before Trump. And it wasn't because I was a Trump fan. I just decided I wasn't going to like generate any more new hate for the man. And then, well, he started to get my funny bone. He's hilarious. And then, you know, every time he came down on an issue, I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, and I'm a recently red-pilled guy, too. I'm a 10-time Green Party candidate. I'm, I was about as left as you can get. But when the left went mad, I had to find a home. And it would it ended up being in the moderate middle, so I'm I'm like slightly right leaning now. But you know the political ideology when they come out and say things like whatever it is, you know, supporting Black Lives Matter and then putting the truckers in jail, and then when it's and when it's laid out in political uh, policy, we have drastic different countries now. And speak to me a little bit about the differences between that, like the vast horrible different to the changes that we've seen under Biden compared to Trump. You know, you know, you can start with the border, but there's many issues that we can hit on that. Yeah. I mean, it's not really recognizable. Nothing that's common sense is, is getting done and everything that's irrational is getting done. So, you know, the case of Afghanistan, it was the longest war in American history, 20 years, you know, almost 3000 lives, uh, you know, many of them in, Arlington Cemetery, young people of promise who went off to fight post 9-11 and what they uh, at the time properly believed was a higher cause and a, a, a righteous mission of rooting out terrorism, only to have, you know, that entire investment, trillions of dollars and, 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 and the human toll, you know, handed off to these um, crazed uh, terrorists. I mean, literally a government, one of whom is on the FBI most wanted list um, in their I think, minister of interior. And then you get into uh, China's Communist Party. I mean, fingerprints all over the pandemic. Um, no doubt that this was released from the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology. No doubt that they lied to the world about it. No doubt that they lied to the World Health Organization about it. No doubt that they kept out the World Health Organization and kept out our own CDC at a time, you know, in early January of uh, 2020, when it would have been immensely helpful to containing the um, the the um, magnitude of the of that pandemic. Nothing there. They were completely. Um, uncooperative and um, facilitating really of of the um, the pandemic's march. I mean, never and then destroying the samples 
Um, you go on and on with every single act that they took. It was designed to make this more, not less difficult on us. And that's assuming that it, that it wasn't human made in the first place. I mean, that we describe this as a lab, like it's involved in, you know, routine right. clinical research. It's a PLA, Chinese military bioweapons facility at the end of the day. And this is part of the problem with just the general relationship that we have with China and maybe to a lesser extent with Russia is that I think too many tend to look at these countries and think that they operate like ours do. Nothing happens in China that the CCP isn't in control of. So, you know, clearly every aspect of that, including the disappearance of, of witnesses uh, who are trying bravely to warn the world of the magnitude of this, weren't touched. And then you get into the genocide of the Uyghurs. Um, genocide, right? How many times uh, since World War II have we said never again and said it with the in the most solemn, serious, committed ways? Um, organizations have said it. Countries have said it. People have said it. Well, never again has been going on for a few years now. And there's not, I'm not seeing the magnitude of uh, passion or outrage rise to this moment of urgency as it relates to two to three million Uyghurs that are being held in concentration camps and work camps in um, Xinjiang province in China. So that, 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 look, if that were the singular issue going on in the world right now, it would be a 10 out of 10 on urgency because it's genocide and there's no more serious word right. in politics than genocide. Uh, and then sadly, of course, it's not the only crisis that we're confronting. Uh, I do feel, and this is speculative, that when you have a world power like Putin and Russia you know, invading Ukraine, it's going to get a lot of attention, a lot of scrutiny and a lot of anxiety. I am, at the end of the day, continue to be vastly more concerned about China's Communist Party and the magnitude of infiltration it has into the United States, the amount of intel operations it has in the U.S. By the way, our own FBI director said they've had an open counterintelligence investigations uh, about every about one every 12 hours. That's the magnitude of infiltration into, the, into this country. Now, of course, for those who aren't politically engaged or politically involved, it's it's tough to kind of communicate, you know, what that actually means, you know, and, and how dangerous it actually is. But it's based on three, four decades now. I guess you go all the way back to, you know, Nixon and Kissinger to, to China uh, in a different world that we lived in back then. Uh, but that kind of started it all off. Yeah. So, and then, you know, you mentioned the border. You can't, you know, obviously just crucially important. I mean, we've had... You know, two, two to three million illegals. Nobody knows who they are. They're over a hundred countries that have been represented. Um, you know, how with a straight face do we possibly say that we're serious about terrorism, serious about the drug war, no. serious about human trafficking, serious about crime, um, serious about American jobs and wages when you're letting that go on. But if you go to the World Economic Forum, one of the key points is they you know, a big believer, they want to see South to North migration, um, Africa to Europe, Latin America to the US. And uh, with your green background, you might, you know, be able to put some 
context on that, but they do a lot of it. A lot of it's done in the auspices of, of climate, which in my view, that's the real crisis of the climate debate is what could be some underlying really legitimate issues have been so utterly politicized and one-sided that they've lost all credibility. And then you run the risk of going almost to the opposite extreme of saying it's all nonsense. But it, but it, you can't help but say in the political context, it has been all nonsense. I mean, look at this Paris Accord that would have, you know, the world's largest polluter is China's Communist Party. You mentioned uh, Steve Bannon. You know, one thing Steve, Steve said is, he says, if you were going to do one singular thing to improve the global climate and you could only do one thing, taking down the CCP would be like the most logical thing. I mean, when you look at the magnitude of the missions that they have, um, the the continued commitment they have to uh, um, to their coal and and uh, you know traditional energy resources and what they're doing in the South China Sea, just carving up these coral reefs to create military islands, it's far they're far and away the greatest threat. And yet, when you look at environmental activism, where is it all directed? It's all directed against the United States. Why is it directed against the United States and not the, and not China? Well. Now you get into the global flow of money and the fact that a lot of these activist organizations have been funded by China. And why not? Is there not anything more sensible than to try to, you know, impede your biggest economic competitor with regulatory restraints that are not that you're not that don't apply to you? I mean, it's it's never been an even playing field with China from day one. And that's one of the reasons we've had this extraordinary trade deficit, loss of whole industries, jobs, hollow, hollowing out of the Rust Belt and our middle class and all the associated societal problems, including our drug problem, which in my view has a lot of its origins in the demise of uh, traditional manufacturing in this country. There's something, you know, and that gets into kind of a psychological area, but. There's something about American man manufacturers, um, you know, who've in many cases followed in the footsteps of their parents and, you know, guys who take their jobs really seriously and take great pride in it. And then all of a sudden they don't have it. They can't provide for their families. They're facing anxiety, tension, divorce. And then a lot of times they have on top of it, physical ailments that literally have come from all this hard labor. And, you know, one thing flows to another and the next thing they're, you know, they're a fentanyl overdose, 95% of which comes from where China, right. It's through a, and through where predominantly the open border. Yeah. I, it, it seems like so many of these arguments, if you let them play out by the time you get down to it, like I saw Piers Morgan, I don't know. He had a feminist on the other day and she was saying, Oh no, we should let transgenders, you know, compete with women. And I, you know, now, now we've got a new class of feminism called the turf, right? Because you're trans exclusionary, um, radical feminist. If you don't think, you know, I mean, if you don't want to have sex with a trans person, then you're accused of being transphobic. No, I just like my girls, you know, it, it, some of these arguments get so ridiculous. And Piers Morgan was talking to this girl and she says, no, we should be able to compete. And he's like, okay, so just let me get this straight. You take the, the best male boxer in the world and you give him estrogen for a year and he should be able to go and compete with women. Have I got you right here? And it's almost like you can see the word, the, the, 
you know, the words having an effect on these people. And they're like, oh, shit, I'm, I'm backed into a corner now. But to me, all of this stuff, including the Russia's, the Russia thing and, and the border and all of it, it just seems like, and I, I appreciate your take on Russia, if you could chime in on that, is nothing more than a distraction from the real issues. 20 black men are killed every day, you know, and we have as many, you know, overdosing on opioids and all we can. And it's the same people that voted for the mask mandates that are standing up in in outrage over what's going on in Ukraine. I don't understand. Gavin Wax put it pretty clearly the other day. You know, the NATO moves and all this kind of stuff in the historical background. Ukraine is like one of the most corrupt countries in the world. My country just gave them a half billion dollars. We don't have enough problems at home with drugs and our children and stuff like this. They were just giving. The only argument you would make, the argument that you would make for military support for Ukraine, and I've supported that, by the way, Trump did as well. I mean, we, we lost Crimea predominantly because um obama you know sent them blankets and things like that but never gave them the lethal force they needed to defend their country um trump changed that and and as a result for four years he didn't have any russian aggression for the most part against against ukraine and now they sense weakness but if you were going to make the argument that hey we've got to go all chips in and defend the complete sovereignty of Ukraine, then you have to ask the other questions. Where were you in this whole Afghanistan debate? Because, you know, in my view, uh, you had, we're talking about an underdeveloped Central Asian country that's been, you know, at war for most of modern times. But, you know, they did have a a developed constitution, over 500 Afghan men and women that, that gathered and debated and came up with a constitution signed by the president. They hadn't elected. Um, assembly and, and president. And the provisions of that constitution were very clear about the fact that the first vice president was to assume the presidency in the absence of the president. So the president flees the country under threat, hasn't shown any intent on returning. There's no basis to acknowledge the Taliban as any governing, as any legitimate governing entity, simply because they had more guns and more willingness to die for their cause. Than anyone else that I and I warned back in the late summer that that was sending tyrants of the world a very dangerous message as related to Xi Jinping in Taiwan as related to Russia and Ukraine and that and by the way Russia Putin's had these troops on the Ukraine border for a long you know pretty much you know back into the spring of uh, of twenty one so um, you know it, it it's been something I think that he saw right away as it relates to Biden. And, and then you have to say, like, well, what's motivating? To me, this is the biggest question. And you know, I think I can answer almost any question about what's transpiring. But the one question that I can't answer is a question that no one's asking. And that is, Joe Biden and his family have enough money for, for 10 lifetimes. Um, the work that they did, in my view, it deserves more scrutiny and, um, and, and, and there might be criminal dimensions to it that deserve to be explored and should be explored by our, by the FBI. But, uh, what motivation would he possibly have to 
harm and take down this country. I made I made the argument over the last few weeks that that has to be more than just money. Um, that wouldn't be enough. So when we talk about, you will hear this phrase used very routinely now among his among opponents that Biden's compromised. Well, compromising him isn't enough. To, it's not enough to sort of say, well, yeah, son had this, you know, hundred million dollar plus private equity fund that was almost exclusively funded by the Bank of China, or you know, the wife of the mayor of Moscow, one of the closest friends that Putin has you know, at $3.5 million unexplained to this day, just, you know, wire transferred to him or that he sat on the board of Burisma, uh, you know, for extraordinary sums of money, despite having zero experience in energy, zero experience on Ukraine. Those may gain favor or an opportunity for communication and an audience that might not exist in a close policy call, maybe, they have influence there and you lean one way or the other. But this idea of destroying this country and its foundational principles in ways that it's very difficult to see us being able to turn around. Um, and then the, the personal legacy that he's going to leave in, which is going to be a devastatingly negative one, seemed to require something deeper than just money. And, and I wish we had a government law enforcement and Congress who are asking that logical question. Because so are you hinting at some spiritual, spiritual evil of some sorts? Because what else is there? Power and control and money. I mean, same kind of thing. Like, what else is there? Like, I mean, to, when, I, when to, I've gotten into these issues, I've always noticed we lose the debate when we start when we start speculating. I mean, obviously, I have in the back of my mind what I think are some probable scenarios right. that actually would put a person in the position of doing the seemingly irrational. Um, so that's one thing. Like, for instance, if there had been, um, you know, a kind of collaboration on voter issues, and that was known to the CCP or and or Russia or both, mm-hmm. you know, them coming forward with that would delegitimize Biden and, mm-hmm. you know, he couldn't do it. So if you're sitting there and the phone rings and it's um, <laughs> it's Xi Jinping on the other line, say in early August, and get your troops out of you know Bagram by uh, you know or out of out of Bagram in July, you probably or we're going to go public with this stuff. Oh, I you see. Know, yeah, you might you might be inclined to get your troops out of Bagram and not pre-announce. You do it in the most irrational way, right? It looks because mm-hmm. there's no way you can look look. Even though these guys um, are ideologically very different, we have 20 years of experience in handing off military assets. We don't leave $80 billion of equipment behind for the Taliban Mm -hmm. for any other reason than the fact that we wanted to. We don't leave Americans in harm's way. Mm. Um, and, And that air base, by the way, is a few hundred miles away from China. It's a few hundred miles away from Iran. There's, a, it, it, in this moment in the, his, in the in the sort of evolution of geopolitics and strategic challenges, it's very difficult to envision an airbase that would be more vitally important to the U.S. So I think you could trade off a number of our ba- airbases abroad, saying that they were less um, important. 
-hmm. And certainly we could have negotiated scenarios under which we removed our troops, but maintained our presence at that air base. That's not uncommon. It's what we've done for the most part all over the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, maybe I'm, I'm feeling kind of hopeless. Um, I, I you can't feel hopeless. Well, I mean, when I, and I try not to look at the news, but it's just we, we see so many issues. And, you know, to get to where Biden picked up, we took a lot of work. It was incremental steps, and it seems like we slid back so fast. Oh, yeah. And and recovering that ground again, it doesn't matter who comes in. No one's a savior. The presidential occupant has very, you know, has limited powers, not very limited powers, but there's only so much he can do. The system kind of works against him, and, and, and rightly so. I mean, the forefathers kind of dreamed that up back in the early days. But sometimes I just look and I go, we are so, like, you look at people coming across the border, you look at the, the big cities, uh, violent crime, our inability to have reasonable discussions about the important issues. Nobody wants to talk about crime because it, it, it immediately becomes a race issue. And then, you know, we have to deal with the root causes if you don't, then, you know, Band-Aids, throwing money at it, it never works. Gun yeah, control and, doesn't and the, work. And the good news, like for our side, at least, is we have statistics. You know, it's not just yeah. hyperbole and, but and theory. With this mass formation so psychosis, nobody... I, you know, you had, I wish I had this right at the, my, the forefront, but you go back, it was um, more police stops over a period of like two years than there are people in the country. It was over 300 million or something like that, of which there had been, you know, less than 10 African-Americans, unarmed African-Americans shot by law enforcement. And even each one of those cases had, you know, sort of factors that were contributing to them. Uh, and in almost every one of those cases, they were held accountable. This idea that we have American law enforcement out there, you know, shooting black people dead um, for no apparent reason, yeah. except for the color of the skin, is absurd. No. African-Americans are very well represented in law enforcement. And the only thing I can say is that, you know, because we've had certain communities in this country that have been either unpoliced or, or subjected to uh, substantial amounts of crime. They've been uh, so they've been comparatively over-policed. Number of stops may go up, things like that. But you're not seeing the, that reflected in in the numbers. And the bigger issue, though, it, so when anyone says, "Hey, I feel hopeless," and this was kind of how everyone felt at the beginning of the Tea Party movement in 2009. You had Obama come in, media mm -hmm. loved him, mm -hmm. country would you know there was a lot of momentum beyond his presidency. A lot of uh, undue, uh, I think, an unjustified hope that he was somehow going to be different, mm -hmm. which he wasn't. Um, and then, you know, the House in the hands of Nancy Pelosi, the Senate in the hands of then Harry Reid. Um, people said, well, we're done. We're done. What are we going to do? And well, what we did was we took control of our side. And I want to say the biggest deficiency that we confront in this debate operationally, strategically, ideologically, is spinelessness and lack of strategy and unity on our side. Money has corrupted um, 
our side of the movement, sadly. Wow. It's, we have, you know, what you would call in traditional Marxist terms, controlled opposition, right? So what was mm. the first thing Lenin, you know, kind of came up with this concept, what the first thing you do is you create your opposition before the opposition emerge manifests sort of organically. That way you can collapse the opposition, you can control the verbiage of the opposition. So when you take these really big titanic issues, some of which we just talked about, like what happened on November 3, you know, you heard my view. I don't I don't know for sure the Biden is or isn't legitimate, but there's sure more than enough evidence to be going back and be and you know systematically looking through the, the allegations that are made. And then the, the the genocide against the Uyghurs and CCP's uh, responsibility, culpability in the uh, pandemic. Where where's the leadership on these issues on our side? You know, I understand that we don't control the government, but where where are the people standing up, representing truth and you know just reasonable thinking as it relates to confronting some of the biggest challenges of of Mm-hmm. This country's history, really. Yeah, it, it seems like if you're talking about the right, the political right, you really need to shift gears and change tactics because yeah. what they've been doing isn't working. We still have these false narratives that run rampant. The media is still controlled by the left. We still have, you know, the infiltration of these WEF groups. And it, you, you, you say, well, we it can't just... Stop always, we're always, if you ever notice this, we're always... Um, reacting yeah it's it's like even people that you might consider leaders on our side when you look at what do that what do they actually do they're basically narrating um doing the play-by-play announcements of our defeats they're kind of right they're like the play-by-play announcers of the bad news bears that's not leadership. I mean, it's probably useful that the American people are aware of some of these things that are occurring, because I think it can be inspiring, hopefully. And and but but you know, even that it, there's downside danger to it. You can demoralize American people too. So we have to be speaking to aspirations. We have to be on offense, talking about what we are going to do. Amen. Uh, on every one of these issues, and even and almost especially when you're not in power is when that obligation is the highest. Mm-hmm. That's when the American people, you cannot allow them to fall back into this position, which many Americans have, that, well, both sides are equally to blame. No one has any solutions. There's no hope. Um, offering hope and doing it in a, not just a rhetorical inspire, rhetorically inspiring way, but doing it in a, in a substantive policy inspiring way is kind of what leadership's all about. And I have to say, which is difficult for me to say, coming out of some of these worlds, I'm just not seeing the leadership because the leadership would start with outreach designed toward unity, right? Meaning it would be, it would be a, we would be a collaborative, unified entity. That doesn't exist. In fact, some of the, be- the, the most vehement competitive and negativity and that you'd see is among these varying organizations that view themselves as competitors. Uh, it's very childish. And then you would, you would see um, uh, a willingness and enthusiasm even for grabbing onto these big issues. I mean, how many times I used to even ask what we were doing, we would go to court through some of these organizations on the most minuscule 
issues but what was at stake was the interpretation of the constitution and the answer was always no no no. the constitution is so important that we literally have to uh, go and litigate this even you know just for the purposes of symbolism this is a knife in the heart of the representative democracy uh which is the core of our constitution of representative government and a government of the people and you know let me just ask you maybe you heard one word out of um you know uh, the republican national committee or from uh, you know its director nothing mm-hmm. you know anything out of the major out of these major right of center organizations that have been the recipients of billions of dollars since the 70s and 80s to defend these principles nothing mm-hmm. it's that's what's that to me is a leadership crisis that cannot be ignored and nor is it one that i individually can solve but it's one that collectively you know with support we're obligated to solve mm-hmm. Ron and McDaniels, who I'm thinking of. I mean, you, you know, can you imagine being, a, by the way, just one anecdote on that, can you, or one uh, footnote on that. Can you imagine being like a uh, federal judge and you're you're hearing one of these cases related to November 3? You think these guys aren't intelligent enough to be sitting there saying, you're asking me to validate something that literally Ron and McDaniel had the RNC is not validated, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you can't tell me that's not a factor, but it's not in the DNA of our side to ever be introspective. I think we need to be introspective and realize that we have lost every major institution of civil society over the last three to four decades. Yeah, including and as we did it, all we did was point the finger at the absurdity of it. Yeah, including the traditional like marriage and like our churches or schools or education. Like when you say that, man, it really hits home for me because it's not just the, the surface political stuff. It's deeply entrenched into our traditional way of being and it's all gone. And it seems to be, I mean, it's not completely gone, but bit by bit, it seems like the, for lack of a better term, these people that claim to, you know, come from this Marxist leftist angle just been chipping away at it and now we're sitting here and strategically too yeah yeah that's the key the key is because you you can't look at our side and say we're operating strategically we're acting reactively um in a disjointed way and and not a unified way Mm -hmm. they have had a very elaborate plan that they've executed on and this is what they're good at because at the end of the day they don't have the people with them um, the, the, you know, you can ballpark what the percentage of it is, but when you get into some of these real extreme positions that they hold, like say surrendering American leadership in the world, it's gotta be 15% or less, you know, and when you really, when you really say, Hey, hey, this is what these guys intend to do. It's a very small percentage. And we've had a lot of civility on our side. And I find myself sometimes being guilty of that myself to be intellectually honest about it. I mean, I'm not, I would like and have always wanted to see a civil nature to our politics. And I've worked, when you look at the three elected officials that I work for, they're kind of right out of a lot of the more moderate side of, of Republican politics at a time when I strongly believed that representative democracy required 
degrees of negotiation and compromise. And at the end of the day, what else was there except civil war? I mean, that was kind of the, the to me, the ultimate act of patriotism is that you acknowledge the diversity that exists in the country. And so when a lot of these social issues emerged, even though you sort of say, well, gee, I don't, you know, I, I don't believe, you know, in those radical ideas, it was always presented like you were being offensive or you were uh, being intolerant or uh, just even discriminatory in your viewpoints. And you think about that, that really plays on the psyche of decency. So somebody like when even myself going through a lot of those things, I've always wanted to do it in a decent way. You know, I've always wanted to be not, not perceived to be uh, or in fact be engaged in anything that was not inclusive or not tolerant of the other side. And I've never personalized any of these issues, you know, when in when whole organizations or people, and I've had the most unjust and unfair things done on to me, like anyone in this profession has, I've never personalized it. I've said, you know, that's kind of, you know, the way the other team is going about things. And of course they're going to do that, but I do expect that the people on our side are going to be sufficiently supportive and that we're going to have a plan. And I think that's, I think right now, when you look at what the crisis is, it's the leadership crisis. Right. So who's the leader? We, we got Trump uh, and you know, what is the future for Trump? That's a big question. And one thing I would really love to hear from Trump is an acknowledgement because we all, and me especially, I mean, I've been out there a big wave for five years and all the way back to 15, we announced June 16, mm -hmm. 2015, talking about how important his um, read on these issues was, how spot on he was. And then uh, the acknowledging, you know, the, at least the first three years pre-pandemic of all of those accomplishments, no doubt, very successful, very successful president. But there were some missing components that um, he needs to address in the next administration. And I think if he addressed, like he, you almost want to hear from him an acknowledgement, right. uh, which I know is not in his instinct. He, yeah, to say that. I screwed up and I won't, I won't do it again. And he, moving forward, I'm going to do this instead. Yeah, yeah and you know, honestly, everyone's a product of their background right. and their experiences. And I'm sure he's seen examples, and he's right. It, there are examples where you know people are apologetic or uh, acknowledging flaws, and it only deepens their problems. It doesn't solve them, right? That's the sad reality. Um, and and so maybe there's a reluctance to do that. But, you know, if we go back to battle again and he wins, and you certainly can't imagine this administration being reelected or anyone, on, any Democrat out there having any degree of political uh, traction to, you know, it, it, all the wind is at our back if we're able to have a free and fair election. And, um, you want someone who's going to acknowledge that we need administration and staff with the right people, or we're going to stall out again and not, and get through four years and not have major things that we promised accomplished. You need another contract with America, like Gingrich had almost, where mm. we say, um, "Here's what we're going. Here's specifically what we're going to. This is what we promised the American people. Right. This is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. This is what we promise you we're not going to do." And then and then you got to and keep your word. The American people really have a lot of respect for that, understandably, you know, that in a, in a field that's not known for following through on promises and being intellectually honest about things, that means a lot to be able to just check off the accomplishments that you 
promised that you were going to do. These party platforms have come to mean almost nothing uh, in modern times. Amen. Uh, Mr. Johns, thank you. So Mike, Michael Johns is the co-founder of the Tea Party movement. He was a White House speech writer under George H.W. Bush, policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation as well. And I didn't know this, a diehard Eagles fan. Dude, I love that you came out as an Eagles fan. Tell us a little bit about it. I'll go further. I represented Jeff Lurie and Eagles on the the Lincoln Financial Field Stadium deal. Cool. When I worked in government relations in the late 90s uh, in Philadelphia. So I had a chance. And you were rewarded with a Super Bowl after all those years. (laughs) I encouraged John Runyon to run for Congress in New Jersey. Where he won. Wow. I told him what it was going to be like when he got down there, and he uh, validated that I was right about that. So, um, yeah, well, hey, we made the playoffs, right? I mean, uh, I, didn't, I, didn't think half, I, this... I didn't think halfway through the season that was the possibility. No. But I'd say um, it was a rebuilding year for sure. The whole, this, uh, I, never, the, I never would have envisioned the Rams coming out on top this year. I just mm-hmm. didn't have that in my. So I did win my fantasy football league. <laughs> what are you doing? For about, for about the fifth time in uh, nine years, I think. Wow. All right. That's not too bad. Yeah. Well, man, that's a great story about Runyon, one of my favorite guys, man. That old school bunch of Hugh Douglas and Trottier, Trottier and uh, oh, yeah. Andy Reid was there. The The conversations that they had on the bus and just the – the manness between, like, uh, you know, they would never let Reed on that bus, eh? Because, you know, he, the joke was he'd eat all the food and stuff like this. <laughs> like, you know, I, mean, I got a photo with uh, Runyon, and it's, I feel, I'm like uh, half his one of the size. Best, yeah. And I, and I said, hey, I played defensive end, in, in, which I did in, in high school. Yeah. Um, and loved it. But uh, kind of, sh- you know, you want like six foot, six one usually for that mm-hmm. position. Yeah. yeah. Wrestling was my better support, but he says I would have put put figured you more for a nose guard, <laughs> which I think in junior high actually was I played him all over the place. Um, it's a great sport. That too, of course, has been highly politicized, and it's turned a lot of pe- it's turned a lot of fans off. You know, a lot of the biggest NFL fans I know won't turn that game on any longer, which is says a lot because their patriotic sense and commitment is just higher and um they could have gone about that totally differently just as a final thought is it you know Mm -hmm. you you could acknowledge that everything that they're saying is true as it relates to getting our arms around law enforcement making sure that we don't have any racism in society but you took it out on the flag man i mean that was the wrong object to have um taken because to the extent we fix any of these issues and many of them i think have been somewhat overblown it's the flag and everything that it stands for that allows us to resolve it so you've attacked the very foundation of representative democracy and freedom that allows us to continually improve as a country and uh, no accident because we're dealing with at the core beneath the layers of battles that they take yeah, some very evil people that do want to see this country fall apart. Mm-hmm. And um, we well, need to come to grips with that in a very uh, concrete way, or, or they will prevail. Sam Hanna gets in on Facebook. Trump 2024, first take back the House. November, you will see no chance in hell this happens with Trump at the helm. 
uh, just on the way out, tell me it's all going to be okay. Tell me we take back we. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I can't even believe I'm saying we, but I'm, I so badly want us to get back to law and order, the strong borders. This is going to be, uh, yeah, look, I, and um, I don't say this as someone, I don't say this because I'm, I'm more of an activist than I am an analyst as much as I think I'm a better analyst than most analysts, these so-called analysts. We're going to take up to 100 seats in 22. Uh, this is going to this is going to eclipse the Tea Party 2010 revolution, where we picked up over 60, which in turn was the biggest uh, Republican victory since the 1930s. Uh, it was historic. And once we do that, I like the idea that um, you know we turn these because we have so many lingering investigatory issues that we've got to turn. These committees have got to be provide you know doing the oversight duty and digging into these issues but at the but i have to say also I, i'm frustrated and i've seen some deficiencies in our system uh which is first time i've ever acknowledged that is that we shouldn't grind to a halt uh, because one party holds the congress i mean uh, you know we can't hold committee hearings we can't bring legislation to the floor it's way too much power held in the hands of the governing party and too much power in the hands of leadership within both parties. And that renders, see, 535 guys, but, and men and women down there representing these districts, but in reality, it, Congress is in the hands of half a dozen people, and that's, and they're dealing with lobbyists and money interests, and they're in their positions because they're the best fundraisers in the party, not because they're the best policy visionaries or negotiators or oratory. Uh, experts or um, uh, most popular with the people. It's simply fundraising. Money is corrupting the American political system. And yet I acknowledge money as a means of political speech and the courts have, but we've got to get our arms around making sure that um, it doesn't take over things because that's really kind of at the core in my view of, of what's been allowed to happen and, and the way foreign countries have been able to infiltrate and influence this country in very irrational and self-damaging ways. I appreciate your time, brother. I love you. Thank you for the wisdom and the deep knowledge um, and uh, for letting me touch you up every year or so and uh, coming on the show. So I really appreciate you it. Great to see you again. All right, Michael. I appreciate it. Take care. All right. Take care. Michael John, if you need him. Wow. How about that? That didn't suck. Always such a great wealth of information. And, um, and he's dry as hell, but at the end, we lightened him up a little bit, talking about the uh, the Eagles. Yeah, I forgot he represented Lurie on the stadium. And, uh, yeah, he told me about counseling running. So uh, thanks. I didn't get to many of the comments tonight, um, but all the links are in the show description. If you want to find out how to find them, you can find Michael Johns here on the twatter i had it i had it too zoomed in when we went to the first cut i'm sorry that's the bad production job on my part but here he is on the twitter and then these are all the links that are in the show description below uh you can find them on getter here and maybe i should show you oh you can see the links up there but you have to zoom it in you can find them on parlor here here he is on the youtube and then here he is on the fake book. Here he is on the Instagram. 
Here he is on the Spotify. Spotify? Spotify? He's got his own Spotify channel. Okay, good. Here he is on the Gab. <laughs> Here he is on the MeWe. Yeah. Oh, maybe he's got a private. It, uh, that's weird. Oh, he hasn't posted anything yet. I <laughs> sent him a Telegram or a, a MeWe request. Oh, uh, Tucker's on. Oh, shoot, it is 9 o'clock. Uh, 8 o'clock your time if you're in the Eastern Time Zone. Uh, here's Michael Johns. This is his Telegram uh, profile. And then he has a channel as well, so you can find him there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, talk about a social media monster. This guy, like, just as an example, I, I tweeted this out yesterday that he's going to be on the show tomorrow, February 28th, 7 p.m. EST. Hashtag JFS live on YouTube. Fake book, D Live and Twitch, and like get a load of this activity. 126 tweets, retweets, like jeepers. The guy has a rabid, rabid following. So I appreciate the love and I appreciate his time. He's uh, well spoken, deeply knowledgeable, and uh, even with 214,000 followers, like he didn't always have that many, but he always, his base was always as rabid is like just participating in getting the word out there. So anyways, my deep thanks to Michael Johns for coming in. That's a second or th I think the second time I've had him on. Um, he is the co-founder of the Tea Party movement. He was in the White House of uh, George Bush Sr., HW, um, and he is a policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. And as we mentioned, a diehard Eagles fan. And uh, I used to have that in my bio. And he just dropped by the other day to say, Jim, I had no idea you were an Eagles fan. I go, oh, yeah. Yep. It's my, the only football team I've ever been a fan of. So uh, uh, deep thanks to Michael Johns and everyone else that uh, tuned in tonight. Thank you very much. Uh, peace, love, hug your neighbor, and whatever you do. Don't put me full screen <gasps> like that. Whatever you do, rip that mask off your face. It's not working. I love you. I'm out. <laughs>